The title of the talk this evening is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we are, coming to close to the, very close to the close of our intensive period of practice here. Soon to be taking yourself, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for you, which for most of you will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that for uh, that many of us uh, come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and some feelings that aren't so dissimilar uh, to those that we came into the retreat with. For many people, there's some feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. And just before it's time to enter in, there may be some uh, feeling that, well, I'm not really quite finished out here. I just need a few more days, uh, maybe another week, so that I can do what needs to be done, and, and then I'll be ready to go into an intensive retreat setting. It seems that some of us might have similar thoughts when it's time to come out of an intensive practice period. An excitement, readiness to go into the larger world, and yet uh, maybe there's some thoughts like, well, just a little bit more time. A few days, a week, a month, that would be good. Uh to do what needs to be done and then I'll be finished and and I'll really be ready to come out of retreat and be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the um, going in and coming out, there might be some degree of resistance, some degree of reluctance, maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known. Or maybe essentially just, just fear of change. Fear of ending one way and then entering into another way. And for some, coming into retreat, there might be, have been a great urgency. You just can't wait to get into retreat. And then at the other end, there might be this feeling of, I can hardly wait to get out of here. <laughs> i got to get out of here. <laughs> I'm just urgently ready to go back into a larger life. So you might check in with yourself and see if some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings are happening. Similar, habituated, conditioned patterns within your own mind, your own heart. Coming up now at the end of this retreat that maybe you experienced in some ways uh, similarly when you were preparing to come here or, or that you might have felt at the onset of the retreat. And of course we may not feel any anxiety in either direction, entering into retreat or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel 
a clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, the next phase and form that life will take, whatever that might be. There's a beautiful piece that uh, was written a number of years ago by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding his experience of traveling in outer space. And I'd like to uh, share this with you. You'll recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you've experienced, what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes to you, through you, comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you, and they are you, and somehow you represent them. You are up here, you up here, you're up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. That the the mind and heart that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course, as we all know, there is a change about to happen. And also, of course, we're aware of various changes that occurred during this time in retreat. So reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life into the larger world. 
one change being the pace of life. At least outwardly it appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice on how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in the slowed down pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness of the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily life. And maybe we've had a little taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we try sometimes, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration, mindfulness, kindness and kindness towards yourself and towards others developed over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body or in the mind, in the heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make more connection and clarity in relationship to others, more clarity in what's important and what's appropriate, what's wholesome and truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down, a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers very little outside distraction compared to life in the larger world. We sit, we walk, listen to Dhamma talks, morning reflections, eat, do your yogi job, sleep, and you've spoken just a little every few days during practice interviews. And within this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop 
a depth and clarity of focused attention and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs with each breath and also in the mind and in the heart. And you've been invited to sense, see, and know. Is the mind, the heart, open to connecting with and receiving the breath or various other occurrences in the body-mind continuum? Or is the attention spaced out, disconnected, separated, or caught, stuck in some physical phenomena or stuck and caught in some thought form? With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer to sensing, seeing, and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind, heart, and body. This sensing, seeing and knowing, is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. We're all really so similar, no matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color. Really, we're really, all of us, just variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into our being, the ver- lends it, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart and mind. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind and heart affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges or the precepts as part of one's daily practice at, at home, maybe beginning the day chanting themselves to chanting them to oneself, it's, this can be a, a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. 
there's a particular rendition of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Farm, which was is a Zen center. And I, I'd like to share this with you because it's particularly relevant to daily life in the larger world. <clears throat> Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, um, and maybe as may also unfold for some of you or maybe all of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life uh, in retreat and outside of a retreat setting in a way that serves and supports this process of the purification of the heart and mind. And sometimes this happens through conscious intention to let go of particular habits uh, of distraction. And as practice deepens, there's more and more often a, a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we're learning about and that you've committed yourselves to. And it's very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So a story that I like to tell, a personal story around this, is that there was a a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. And at some point, 
I began to notice, I noticed it as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere, and my hand would kind of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. The force of habit, as we know, is really incredibly strong. So mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was available, to or not to. (laughs) So looking at another change. In this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days or, or some big events for you. An especially big day, an especially big event, for some of you might have been something as mundane as laundry day. I know for myself, uh, there were times in the early years of my practice, in a long intensive retreat, uh, when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day (laughs) that I would find myself planning for it uh, or just thinking about it before I went to sleep at night the night before laundry day, and then it would be the very first thing that would come into my mind that morning when I woke up. Now that might have happened to some of you, I don't know. I think maybe some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And how about the big event of the midday meal? So you're on your way to bell rings, on your way. Wow, what will we have for lunch for today? Or as you're walking to today's meal thinking, I wonder what we'll have for lunch tomorrow. (laughs) Or the big event of having a one-on-one practice interview, rehearsing, considering what to say, what not to say, maybe going on and on for a while. There's a a poem by... um, wandering Japanese Buddhist poet Nanao Sakaki, who uh, died some years ago, he calls it a big day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with a neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. (laughs) Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation which, as the crow flies, is about 15 or 20 minutes from here. And he'd show up at Lama with his um, uh, small knapsack and his sleeping bag, and he'd stay for a few days. And they were always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for maybe a couple of weeks, and then he'd be back again at Lama. A very dear friend of mine who uh, was the coordinator at the Lama Foundation during those years when Nanao used to come there told me a story um, uh, of one of the times when Nanao had come in for a a day or two from the mountains. And he'd asked her and um, another friend if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend was really delighted. This was something really special. Uh, something that had actually never been offered before. 
So on the appointed uh, day and time, um, my friend and the other invitee found them, found their way to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, uh, Nanao was there, but there was no f- food ready or no food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friends said that they thought maybe they'd made a mistake and uh, that this was the wrong day. But Nanao was very delighted to see them and welcomed them heartily and said, okay, well, now let's go out and find dinner. So my friends said that they walked and picked and dug various wild foods. And then they came back to camp and they built a fire and they cooked what needed to be cooked, ate raw what could be eaten raw, and had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she said they finally really understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or even for a couple of weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong and healthy and happy. Once someone in a practice interview spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste. And we taste it, this good taste, and we take it with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and maybe sometimes some big ways. And, as we know, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our, our work life, our social life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do in the way we spend time with family and friends and partners. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We really truly have the possibility of expanding this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we certainly must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we, we come to know more clearly when we're off balance energetically in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated 
unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balanced within ourselves and within our life as a whole. We find that we have more energy and more time available in our life to more directly and clearly for life to be our practice. So simplicity, simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So the possibility of considering our life, our whole life, as our practice. How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday life? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we begin to integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all the dimensions of our being making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. So for instance, we can find many moments throughout our day when we can very simply bring our attention, for instance, to the sensations of the breath or the body moving, or offer a metta phrase to someone, out to someone or to ourself, in almost any circumstance and almost any activity. From this perspective, it's really not so different then from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat, because you've experienced all of these things that I just mentioned in retreat, and in life outside of retreat. This is all a mirror for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel uh, quite a number of years ago, and who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff, told me a story that's um, a wonderful mirror of a particular and a difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that when she was living in this community in France, there was an old man who was there who was a very difficult, very irascible fellow. She said he was quite messy and argumentative. 
he wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with things, and basically didn't get along with the others in the community. And she said that no one really liked him very much, and he himself seemed to not like many of the people in the community either. And he tried for a long time to stay in the community, she said, but it was very difficult for him as well as for other people. And it was so difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris because he couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. So Gurdjieff, after discussing it with him for a while, finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, (laughs) which the man could not refuse. He was a very poor person. So he did return. And when he arrived back at the community, she said everyone was aghast. (laughs) And they were more, even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting, gathered everyone together, and he listened to everyone's complaints. And, and, and then he, she said he just laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. the conditions of our life and the people in our life are all part of our practice they're yeast for our bread yeast for the purification of our heart and mind yeast for our awakening yeast for our liberation And in relation to the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings, there's one teaching among the 84,000 that the Buddha is said to have offered, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. Metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, and equanimity, upekkha. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings in this teaching. Well, I only have three sons, but uh, they've managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our very best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, what they show us. So, for example, my two oldest sons, who are identical twins and will be 51 years old uh, in June, they continue to show me, to teach me a a relationship that's really quite rare. They are each other's best friends. And of course, although when they were little guys, they would fight with each other, as children do, 
But over all of these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. They never, really never put each other down. No matter what one or the other is feeling or no matter what one or the other has done or not done or no matter how the other's life is going. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never really been disrespectful or codependent with each other. I think this is a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I learn from it over and over again. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. In a poem <clears throat> from a Turkish poet <clears throat> named, uh, I don't know if I pronounce it right, but Ideb Kansaver, and it's a, translated by a man named Richard Tillingcast. And this poem is called Table. <clears throat> a man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that has come in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that had that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It waddled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a clear concentrated, concentrated attention that is deeply grounded in mindfulness and in kindness. And it's true that there's some change in the depth 
and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks, a change from how it is in a retreat such as this, when we connect to a larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this when we connect with the larger world. And although so, although the same degree of uh, degree and depth of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation is usually not totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that have developed, along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding, the multi-dimensional facets of wisdom that have blossomed for each one of you in a retreat like this, are really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, the heart's release that has occurred through metta practice and the continued, continued blossoming of wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat, with one of my Burmese teachers, Sadao Upandita, and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks, and I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking my practice into the whole of my life. And he responded this way. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. And that was all he said. I thought it was pretty good advice. I never forgot it. It was a long time ago. And there are some particular ways that I and others have found to uh, be very helpful in bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate focus of mindful attention into our lives. One suggestion is that I think this one comes from Sylvia Borstein, if I remember correctly. One suggestion is that at the end of each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to stop, be still, and simply connect with the breath at the Anapana spot or in the belly or through the whole body. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very direct, focused, mindful time. With each of these minutes, in fact, having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily lives is to remember at moments during the day to touch the physical sensations, touch physical sensations through contact. So, for instance, the feet and the ground connecting, the bottom touching a chair, hands touching each other, 
mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. Remembering to say a metaphrase to for the drivers around you when you're caught in traffic or to yourself when you're caught in traffic or when you're in a long line at the grocery store. I think the only thing about doing any of these and others as well, of course, which you'll figure out yourself, uh, these very brief meditations, is to remember to do them. That's the hardest thing about them, is to remember to do them. I know some people who put uh, little notes to themselves around their home or in their work or study place to remind them to check in. Uh, So, for instance, a note on the bathroom mirror, breathe, or breath. A little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work, still breathing. Or maybe meta now, or here now. There was a a fellow on the staff at the Insight Meditation Society a number of years ago who worked in the front office, and he had a little stand-up note on his desk that said buttocks, reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair. And it also brought a laugh for anybody who noticed it. (laughs) The former director of the Forest Refuge, which is the long-term practice center on the IMS campus, programmed his computer to um, sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes to remind him to just stop and check in with his breath for a couple of moments. And it happened a few times during the years that I've taught there, many years now, where we'd be having a meeting and the computer would ring and he would, he would just stop. I mean, at first I didn't know. He would stop, then I would say, oh, okay, and I stopped. <laughs> and we would just breathe together and then go on with our meeting. It was great. Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen presence of mind and mindfulness in a clear way. Many of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day, certainly through a week. And we can make some of this consciously, purposefully, make some of this uh, walking a time of our pra- for practice. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space were the same room, and they were up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many uh, practice interviews with staff, and I had lots of other meetings, I, I didn't have much time at all during the day to do any walking meditation. So I decided that every time I would go up and down the stairs, which happened a number of times during the day, that would be my walking practice. And most days, once I made that decision, most days I did this. At one point, a staff member came in for a practice interview, and he was obviously quite agitated. 
and with some difficulty he told me that he was very upset he said because I was ignoring him and he said he felt abandoned by me and he said that whenever he passed me on the stairs I wouldn't even look at him and he was wondering if I was angry with him well I told him that um, going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time and that I certainly had not abandoned him nor was I the least bit angry with him it's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs well as soon as I said that it completely changed his attitude and he was happy for me he said and he told me he thought it was a great idea (laughs) people may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways do it anyways use your life wisely and it's really helpful to connect with other people who practice I know many of you we all know that after being in retreat together we can certainly uh, see and feel the benefits of it as some of you have mentioned in a practice interviews if you're not connected at least sometimes with the group even just a group of two or three to sit with once a week or once in a while check in where you live and see if there's a sitting group in your area and if there isn't one, start one which might mean asking one or two people that you know or that you respond to maybe a notice you put up in a natural food store or something like a yoga studio uh, who would like to meditate and would like to maybe learn to meditate or already do meditate and meet once a week or once every other week or even once a month you can sit together and then maybe read something out loud about the teachings and the practice or maybe listen to a Dhamma talk on a CD or online and you can take turns uh, as to who chooses the reading and uh, who chooses what to listen to and then have some Dhamma discussion about what you've listened to and maybe also about your practice and it can also be helpful at times to pick a theme for a week or maybe a theme for a couple of weeks to particularly focus on the Buddha in a conversation with his chief disciple Ananda or one of his chief disciples Ananda spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends and this is the venerable Ananda speaking to the Buddha he said half this holy life O Lord is good and noble friends companionship with the good association with the good and the Buddha responds to Ananda saying don't say that Ananda it's the whole of this holy life this friendship companionship and association with the good use your life wisely use your energy wisely let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice meditation is one of the greatest arts in life really perhaps the greatest and it can take place anytime anywhere when we have the intention to live awake
as we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, kindness, and joy will increase. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another brief or short uh, Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) And closing the talk this evening with a poem by Native American woman Joy Harjo. She calls this Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And you know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit silently for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.